0: We want to be here to protect every New Zealander and we are not withdrawing from any location at the moment and we are ensuring that you know insurance is available and affordable for those communities.
1: That's Amanda Whiting, head of our biggest insurance company IAG. Note, she says, we are not withdrawing at the moment. The thing is, this warning was made not last month after the disasters in Auckland and Tairawhiti Hawke's Bay, but last year after the big floods in Tasman Nelson and the West Coast.
0: If we don't do anything, then of course insurance prices will increase over the next several years, and you know that, that will be a challenge for in terms of affordability.
1: I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, what is our insurance future? Well, here's the cold, hard
0: truth about the insurance companies, in case you were wondering. Maybe people have the wrong idea of the role of an insurance company. They are incredibly clinical. They're, They're not here to tell society how to live. They're a risk management product. We buy it. We have a contract And they deliver the exact wording of the contract.
1: Janine Starks is a former fund manager and writes about insurance. She predicts that insurance retreat will drive our housing market away from flood risk more than any government-led managed retreat. Are we right now in a bit of a state of
0: insurance limbo? Hmm. Well, I... I I guess you could say that because we've arrived at this place where the insurers have started to get loud, haven't they? Um, they've sort of, they haven't quite covered it up before, but they've always lobbied the government um, more quietly, probably. And um, now we're actually getting them coming out and saying what they think and saying, please stop building in dumb places. You know, it's, it's plain English speaking, which I think is brilliant. The
1: country's largest insurer, IAG, says building in flood-prone areas has to stop.
0: We need to just stop building in these flood-prone locations. We need to be really clear, actually, because local councils are actually caught in the middle here a bit and they're looking for someone to give guidance around where to develop. And coming to the table properly to say look we really have a problem here with climate change Um, you know the floods I think will then focus the public in on this and you know it may be an unusual place to be but I think it's a good place Mm. We, we need to be here. If we look at it from the insurers
1: viewpoint New Zealand is getting riskier and riskier are we at the point where very soon they're going to walk away, that this country, this as someone called it, a small island at the bottom of a very big ocean near Antarctica while sitting on a ring of fire is mm-hmm. an insurance nightmare?
0: Well, it is, but we're not Florida. We're not the Caribbean. And, you know, um, we've got a lot to be grateful for. We've also got a small group of insurers who I think are probably acting pretty responsibly at the moment and right now in the short and medium term they want to keep every New Zealander insured and they want to work with government to achieve that. So they're not panicking but what they are saying is that we've got some areas of very risky housing and it's going to get to the point where they won't want to touch it. And I think they're being responsible in having these conversations now and having them on the back of a giant event so they've got our attention and they've got government's attention because they have been having these chats for many years, but unless you've got a massive North Island flood in in front of you, um, it's pretty hard to to get the politicians, you know, to to buy into that discussion. And I think now they are. You actually call it insurance retreat rather
1: than managed retreat by the government. That is the thing that's going to drive our housing market away from flood risk.
0: Yeah. So by insurance retreat, I mean, insurers can do two things. They can either refuse to quote on your property if it's got too much risk you haven't raised the floor levels there's no um, you know sort of flood management in place around your house from the local council or they can just keep increasing the price on you because you are a very risky property that they might expect you know expect a flood in a one in twenty year event or something.
1: Tower says that it won't withdraw from flood affected areas the premiums will rise but it will not withdraw it's up to the government
0: So by increasing prices and then eventually not quoting, that's how insurers retreat. And they have to do that. They're very, very clinical people. They have to invent the models. They get all the most technical weather people in from around the world, they have data companies, they know what's happening, you know, letterbox by letterbox, I call it, they, they can get it down to who's got the most risk and who hasn't. So they don't want to retreat from the medium and low risk properties, but they either keep putting up the price or not quoting on the high risk stuff. But they also want to get the attention of government to say, look, what can we do here? Can we manage some of these people away from these areas, or can we put mitigation, um, you know, in place to stop to make the risk not not as much, so we don't have to keep paying out? It's a bit like lining up at a slot machine. And it always pays out the money. Well, an insurer doesn't want to own a slot machine that you press the button and they've got to make a payout. They want to get rid of those Mm. and own the ones that are lower risk, that only pay out more randomly. So what does working together with the government look like? That's what we all don't know, um, <laughs> and because they're, they're turning up. They're going to have a task force to decide um, which areas they need to retreat from. The task
1: force will be headed by Sir Brian Roche and will be structured similarly to that of Australia's Queensland task force that was established following their floods, including regional groups. Talking to the Insurance Council, we realise the uncertainty
2: and urgency that individuals need, but we do need to be mindful that there will be some
0: areas where it is unlikely that there will be properties able to be rebuilt. But at the end of the day... You know, this is managed retreat where governments say, "Okay, we've had this big flood. We have some areas that are so horrifically affected, these people can't rebuild back there. And that's what we call managed retreat by government. And and they need to fund that. If a lot of the problem is being picked up by the insurance industry, it's a bit like the Christchurch red zone. They only had to pick up the properties where they weren't a full write-off and they had to offer them some sort of payment based down there it was based on the rateable value of you know three years before the event um, so people didn't do very well out of it but they got a lot of their wealth out of that area which was going to be deserted Mm. Um, and and then you had the uninsured people as well that eventually got a payout in 2018 down there Um, originally they weren't covered so the government now has to think of all of this and and decide right we're at the foot of a a big disaster it's it's never going to be cheaper than now because the insurers are are paying for a lot of rebuilds and repair money yeah what do we do
1: So, it's still not clear right now exactly how we'll be insured in the future. Janine's going to talk later about how other countries do it. But what is certain is the costs are only going one way. Here's Consumer NZ investigative writer Rebecca Stiles. With the increased, you know, the flooding, the
2: cyclone, with the more increased extreme weather events, you know, the only way we'll be up for insurance premiums, definitely.
1: So you have done an investigation into what? The current state of the insurance market in New Zealand at the moment? Uh, So at Consumer we do um,
2: annual surveys on house and contents insurance just to see how much it costs and how much the prices are going up. Um, So our recent one found that prices have been going up across the board and this is despite... government intervention to try and bring it down. So the government has increased the EQC premiums.
1: So this means that if there's an earthquake or tsunami, for example, and your house gets damaged, EQC will cover the first $300,000 and your private insurer will cover anything above this. And because insurers, private insurers are taking on less risk, they should technically cut premiums. Is that uh, your expectation, Minister? Well, um, yes will mean that uh, insurance is more affordable
2: and available to New Zealanders over time. But given all the building supplies and all the different, you know, inflationary pressures in all industries, we didn't see a decline at all. Um, we saw prices went up between like 5 and I think 17%. Um, for a standard and for large homes. Gosh, a mm. 17%. I mean, that's a chunk, isn't it? Yeah, it's been steadily going up for the past 10 years. And then, of course, more frequent extreme weather events. Yeah, it's not going to look good for next year, I don't think.
1: Have we got a dollar amount? I mean, can we say what the average premium is for house and contents?
2: It depends on the provider, of course, um, who you go with and where you live. The most expensive place for insurance, our survey found, is Wellington. For um, a year of house and contents insurance, you're looking at $2,800 for a standard house. So by standard, I mean $450,000 house, where for a larger house valued at $800,000, it's closer to 4500
1: Why is Wellington the most expensive? Because it is so earthquake-prone? The seismic risk
2: in Wellington, and it's the same for Christchurch. Um, Premiums are pretty pricey there as well.
1: Does an insurer um, review premiums every year?
2: Yeah, when you buy insurance, it's just for that year. I've spoken to um, experts in this area, and, and they would like, you know, you've got your mortgage for, what, 20, 30 years, but your insurance is just year by year. So, you know, the worst case scenario is that you could still have, you know, 15 years to go on your mortgage and you can't get insurance anymore, or it's prohibitively expensive
1: to get insurance anymore. So that's like the
2: worst case scenario.
1: And people must be in that situation. I mean, you know, we're hearing about the town of Wairoa where a lot of people don't have insurance. More than 100 houses have been either red or yellow stickered. Denise Eagleson-Karikari says they were the homes of some of the poorest whānau who couldn't afford insurance. They're now crowded in with other whānau or they're in marae or in some cases staying on in unfit houses.
2: When I've asked is there a high um, insurance coverage in New Zealand and they say yes, yes, it's quite high compared to other countries but I think it's hard to get independent data on this. So we don't actually know how many Households aren't insured. I can't get a figure, and um, the Insurance Council tells me that New Zealand has high levels of insurance. So and that's all we know. That's all I can find. If I can find any other numbers, I would love to. If someone can provide those numbers. I would love to have them.
1: I mean, I've I read something in 2021. The Insurance Council said that one third of New Zealanders don't have contents cover. And we've seen that in our recent survey. I think, you know, if you're sitting there,
2: you're looking at whether you can afford housing contents. I mean, contents is the thing I think people will like, oh, I could do without that. You know, insuring your main asset is the, you know, the main thing for people. So we have started to see people cancelling contents because of the cost. And I also think a lot of, you know, a lot of renters, a lot of younger people in Auckland have been hearing anecdotal stories of, you know, they just don't have contents insurance. So, you know, they're stuck with having to... Probably finding somewhere else to live and replacing, you know, the washing machine, the fridge, all of this stuff. So yeah, and with house insurance, I mean, if you've got a mortgage, you have to insure your house, don't you? Well, yeah, the bank will check that when you get your mortgage that it can be insured.
1: How does the EQC fit into all of this? What what is the EQC responsible for? And this is this is the earthquake commission, which is a government agency? Essentially EQC subsidises
2: a private insurer for certain events so for earthquakes, a landslip or volcanic eruption. There's two parts of it. There's the EQC cover for your home so in the event of say an earthquake uh, EQC will stump up the first $150,000 for any damage and the private insurer will stump up the rest up to your, you know, your policy limits. Now since last October that building camp has increased but to 300000 but it depends when you took out your policy. So from the 1st of October 2022 the cap went up to $300,000 but it will take a year for that to go through to everybody's policies Does it matter whether you're insured or not? You have to have private insurance to get EQC cover.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. That's
2: the, yeah, that's the chestnut because mm. it's all administered by the private insurers now is it? So when you've you've got damage to your property, you ring your um, private insurer, and they assess the EQC damage part of it. So you, as a as a customer, you're probably not even aware, you know, if it's coming from the EQC pot of money or from the private insurer's pot of money. You you just aware of what what payout you'll get.
1: Will the government have to pour more money into EQC now? Well, they did last year, and they're also looking
2: at flood insurance. The Treasury is investigating that at the moment. So I think there's meant to be some announcement or decision later this year, but it is something that they're looking into. And there's been the climate adaptation plans which signal that you know something needs to be done in this space, but at the moment what that is, there hasn't been any results as yet.
1: So what we've got at the moment, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have the private insurers that cover you for housing contents, mm-hmm. then... The EQC covers you for land, but there are some changes
2: underway. There's some discussion about whether there needs to be more um, insurance protection for consumers for storm and flood and and what the government should do in that space. So whether that's an extension of the EQC to include um, storm and flood, for your house as well as land. Mm. Is still, it's still still under under discussion.
1: And we don't know how much money would have to go into that. Oh, uh, no. I no mean when no. you talk about how you know the the figures that are being put out there now is billions, isn't and it? It's it's like guess a number. You also write that there is a role here for local government. What do you mean by that?
2: So um, in terms of um, mitigation for um, more extreme weather events, it's up to the local councils to decide where people build and, and helping the communities adapt to climate change and what that means for communities. And so, stories I've written in the past. I've uh, spoken to a few councils, and they don't feel like they've got enough resources to be able to do that. You know, to bring a community with you and say, "Look, you know, maybe we've got to move back how many metres away from the shore, or mm. we'll stop. We need to stop building in this area because it's just going to give us trouble down the line." So there are a series of things that the government is doing. I mean, there's a climate adaptation report that's out, and there's also um, the Resource Management Act is being reviewed, and the there's legislation in there to give local government um, local councils more power um, to make those changes but in uh, amongst all this you know there's you know what should local government um, take responsibility for what should central government do and then there's an insurer saying you know we all need to sort this out but in amongst all these big players the consumer is there with just ever increasing housing and contents insurance bills and I'm um, not not powerless but you know what are you going to do you sort of waiting on other big players to
1: make the moves first before your bills are going to go down. And so further down the track things could improve but right now individuals are facing much bigger bills. Yeah it does feel like this is, these events
2: have brought it all to a head and a lot of big decisions are going to have to be made very
1: soon to protect communities. There's a lot of confusion about insurance right now. Your house is unlivable, right? Yes, absolutely. So what has the insurance company told you? Our insurance company has told us that we technically haven't suffered a loss, so we're not entitled to any kind of payout.
0: The people that are there to assess are sort of saying, oh no, this is a rebuild, this is a refix. Refix is the word they're using. I say, you'd be kidding me. The whole bloody lot should be condemned, parkwise should be condemned. The assessor uh, is out of Christchurch and he's been in the game for 43 years and he, when he walked in our house he said, this is the worst I've ever seen. He's not impressed with the insurer. It wants to scope costs to rebuild the silt-ridden house. There's some very nice people that work at ins- in insurance companies and you hear them all the time coming in on the media and they're very caring people that care about our safety and and our financial futures But they're running a company that deals in black and white. It it deals in contracts. And therefore, you know, they have a responsibility to their shareholders. And all they can do is deliver whatever contract you've bought off them. So if you're sitting there and there's a a house which only needs a repair, it may be blatantly obvious to to an engineer that the floor level needs raising so this doesn't happen again, Um, the house is not a write-off. All the insurer can deliver for you is is clinically what needs doing—that the repair on the house. It's 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 simply not a write-off. They don't insure your land, um, so they can't make you move or even suggest that you should move. That that's not their role in society. It, it's very hard to get across to people that they that the insurers are even really part of this decision. They sort of are and they'll work with government to see what government want to do. But it all comes down to how we want to operate as a society and how we want to fund the position that, you know, our our fellow human beings find themselves in. And, you know, do do we want to be like America where Cyclone Ian recently in Florida left something like 1.3 million people out of the 1.8 uninsured? They had no... No oh. no flood insurance. Uh, these people just now work off government grants to get small repairs done, to rent places. Um, there's just emergency grant system there for them. They've been wiped out financially and Americans must think that's okay. We live in a bit of a different society, don't we, where we have more of a a bailout um, mentality to us. And it's because we care. You know, we, we bail out all sorts of things, don't we, from finance companies to wages on COVID, the red zone in Christchurch when, when that disaster happened. So when we see people in strife where they're going to get wiped out, their wealth is going to get wiped out, we say, hey, that's that's not fair. We need to make a payment to these people As taxpayers, we need to get them back on track in life. We don't want to see them flattened by an event that was just not their problem. And if it's not safe for them to live there anymore, then we have to come together and we have to rely on government and their policies to say, right, what's the right thing to do here? We don't just let these people stand alone like the Americans. Is there a different model out there for, I guess, insuring your property? Well, yeah, you, we can look around the world to somewhere like the UK. The insurance industry and the British government basically had to come together because they have a big flooding problem, hundreds of thousands of houses that are, are a really big insurance problem. And it was getting down to the fact that people couldn't find insurers prepared to cover them. So they set up a scheme that was called Flood Re. So the insurance companies actually went away and set it up between them. I think it cost them about 20 million quid to to set this thing up and it's a reinsurance model and what they do is when they come across a homeowner who's asking them for insurance if they're in a high risk area they can get the flood re reinsurance program to uh, basically provide a cheaper price for them and the way that they do that is all of the insurance companies pay a levy into this system and then if I own a house that's high flood risk My premium is getting paid into it. The flood component of that is getting paid in as well. And they use that money to cheapen insurance for all the people that are at high risk. And it sounds wonderful. You know, it sounds like actually quite a socialist system. And it also sounds like the insurance companies are the ones paying for it. But of course, their customers who don't have a flood problem are getting charged extra for their insurance. Do we want to copy that system? I'm not so sure that it actually has an end date on it. So in 2039, it, it all comes to an end, like bang, it falls off a cliff. I look at it and think, really, would we copy that scheme? I, I get it. It's a way of kicking the problem into the future. But I think in New Zealand, if we just put the scheme in place, put a date on it like that, I think we'd all arrive at that date and we don't have the population to pay to fix the problem. So we're going to have to try and form some sort of cross-subsidisation system and that will mean government funding, levies, where we all pay. And the insurers really just sit there and say, OK, you do what you like as a society. We can't tell you what kind of model to run because they will operate in any environment. They just sit there and really take our views as society and run them into their risk models and come up with the pricing again for us.
1: Right, and decide whether it's worth um, them staying in a place or
0: not, depending on how much money they make. Yeah, and they'll always want to make money. So you'll always find in a, in a position where you get insurance retreat, where they're coming to governments and saying, look, we don't want to cover floods in these areas. This is getting very, you know, very difficult for us. They still want to sell fire and accident insurance and all sorts of other things because, you know, in many parts of the world, which are very high flood risk, people are still insured. They're buying policies that just have flood risk extracted from them. But, if you put aside what's happened in the upper North Island and think of all the high-risk places in the South Island or the lower north, nobody is about to come along and say, we're about to manage you out of that suburb. It's it's very, very unlikely, isn't it? Because the next disaster could be 10 or 15 years away. We don't know. Yeah. So it is always cheaper to wait for the disaster and then do the managed retreat at the foot of a disaster. That's it. I'm
1: Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Rangi Poik engineered today's episode and our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Janine Starks and Rebecca Stiles. Mā te wa.